Okay, we are um, continuing our study in chapter 32 of our Confession of Faith, which is the very last chapter, which of course deals with last things, stands to reason. And last week we introduced this chapter. Did, does everybody have an outline or did, did anybody not get an outline? Okay, Adam. And uh, anyhow, and if anybody wants another one, I got plenty. If you left yours at home, well, we'll outfit you with one right now. Good. Anybody else? All right. Um, anyway, this chapter deals with the subject of the last judgment. And so the first paragraph deals with the certainty of the day of judgment. Then paragraph two deals with the purpose of the day of judgment. And finally, paragraph three deals with the timing of the day of judgment. And so um, what we want to do then is begin to talk about today the first paragraph, the certainty of the day of judgment. Now, what we'll do is read the first paragraph and then we'll begin to talk about it. All right. God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ. To whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon the earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, there are some who deny that there is a God and that deny that there is a day of judgment and they say when you're dead that's it and there is nothing beyond that. However, both reason as well as conscience cry out to God for God to call all the subjects of his moral government to an exact accounting for their character and their actions And the reason why there's this universal awareness and belief in a day of judgment is because people see that in this life, justice is not done. Uh, People who are wicked get away with their wickedness and people who are righteous suffer a great deal um, for nothing that they have done wrong. And so consequently, when you look at this life and you look at the circumstances and what people do and and what happens to them, there is this universal sense that um, life is not just. And if, if there is a God, which of course there is, and if he is just, which of course he is, then there has to come a reckoning in which all the wrongs are made right and all the right is rewarded and recognized. And so what we have is um, this universal awareness in the conscience of humanity, the world over and throughout the ages, that there is going to be a day of judgment in order to rectify the injustices that are in this world. Now, I want to look at a, at a number of passages that support that idea Um, let's turn to a couple of short ones and then we'll look at a longer one. First of all, the book of Ecclesiastes. If you open your Bible in the middle to Psalms, it's Psalms, Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. 
In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, And uh, verse 14. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse uh, 14. It says, There is a vanity which is done upon the earth, that there be just men unto whom it happeneth according to the work of the wicked. Again, there be wicked men to whom it happeneth according to the work of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And so, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is a very interesting book, but the author of it's making a simple observation and he's saying, you know, the righteous have the kind of outcomes the wicked ought to be having. Here's a person who lives a very righteous life and they die at a young age of cancer or an automobile accident or whatever. And here's a very, very wicked person and they live to a ripe old age and good health and are extremely wealthy and and uh, seems like everything has gone their way. And so he's saying, this is, this is not right. This is a, this is a vanity that um, needs to be addressed. And then a second passage is Jeremiah chapter 12. Uh, verses 1 through 2. Jeremiah chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. So it's uh, Ecclesiastes, and then uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Well, Song of Solomon's in there, of course. but So Jeremiah chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Jeremiah says, Righteous art thou, O Lord, When I plead with thee, yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments. He's got a problem. He's saying, God, I I know you're righteous, but I have a question about the way you're handling the moral governance of the universe. He says, Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are all they happy that deal very treacherously? Thou hast planted them, yea, they have taken root. They grow, yea, they bring forth fruit. Thou art near in their mouth and far from their heart. There reigns, it says in the old King James, from that which is the controlling disposition of their life. Reigns on a horse or what control the horse. And so <clears throat> he's, he's quizzing God and he's saying, God, you know, when I look at the wicked and I see the blessings they enjoy, I don't get it. And of course, I'm sure you've all felt that way. I certainly have felt that way as well. And then Habakkuk, the book of Habakkuk is in the Minor Prophets. Habakkuk says to God, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and behold and, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devours the man that is more righteous than he? So we see in Ecclesiastes, we see in Jeremiah, we see in Habakkuk, each of these biblical authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit recording their dismay 
at the injustice that God lets go on in this world without dealing with it. Now, the fourth passage you want to turn to, and this will be the final one dealing with this issue, and the one that resolves it, is in the book of Psalms. So, Psalm 73. Now, this is an extended um, dealing with this very same subject in Psalm 73. Now, the psalmist almost lost his confidence in God over this very issue. Okay? He saw the injustice. He saw that God wasn't dealing with it. And it, it, it brought him to the point where he was starting to doubt God and cast aspersions on God and question whether God was even just or not. And you see this people doing this all the time. Well, how can there be a God with all the injustice in the world, right? If there was a God, he'd put a stop to it. Well, here's the answer. Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. In other words, he was just about to give up his faith. All right? Here was his problem, verse 3. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasseth them or surrounds them about as a chain. Violence covers them as a garment. They become very cocky because they're wicked and everything is going well. They're prosperous and healthy. Verse 7, their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They're very wealthy. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. It's very arrogant in their speech. Verse 9, they set their mouth against the heavens, their tongue walketh through the earth. They defy God with their mouth. Verse 10, therefore his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, how doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Now notice verse 13, verily or truly, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. So here he's looking at the wicked and they're just healthy and happy and prosperous and arrogant and defying God and they are doing great. And he says, I was envious of them. He says, as for me, he said, I cleansed my heart. I washed my hands. That is, I was practicing moral righteousness and rectitude and uprightness. And he said, I've been plagued. And chastened all the day long. Everything's gone bad for me. My health, my finances, 
my family. And he says, this business of following God and being morally upright um, isn't, uh, isn't a very good deal because those who defy God are doing better than me. Now, we have all seen that and we have all thought that way. And when we start thinking that way, it's like, Psh, why should I be righteous and moral and upright? I'll just throw it overboard and party with everyone else and have a good time. And that's what he meant when in verse 3 he says, My feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. Verse 3, For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Well, here's the answer. He says, verse 16, When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. He said, you know, when I looked at it purely with my own eyes and my own understanding, I was blown away. It was too painful for me to contemplate that I'm righteous and I have things bad and they're wicked and they have things good. But he says, when I went to church, when I went into the sanctuary of God, and I started looking at this whole thing from God's perspective and listening to God's word, the lights came on. And the light that came on is that this life isn't all there is. He says, then I understood not their current condition. Then I understood their end. What's going to happen to them at the last. Now notice verse 18. He says, surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou cast them down into destruction. How they are brought into desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. And he's talking, of course, about them being cast into hell. They're in slippery places. Um, you can't stand before God and before his throne when you're a wicked person. You just slip right into hell. You just set them in slippery places. You cast them down into destruction. That's casting them down into hell. How they're brought to desolation in a moment. They go, and you remember the story of the rich man Lazarus, right, in Luke 16? I mean, this guy went from the palace to the pit in an instant. He says, they're brought to desolation in a moment. They're utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so, O Lord, when you awake, you will despise their image. Now, God isn't really asleep, right? He's fully aware. He sees everything that's going on. But it appears to us he's asleep because he's not doing anything. Well, why isn't God doing anything with the wicked right now in terms of punishing them? Because he's waiting. God's very patient. He's giving them time to repent. Here's dear Cindy, saved at what, 66, are you? Yeah. What if God had gotten impatient with you after 65 years? God's very patient. And, you know, people live lives, and we've all done it, live lives of wickedness for a long, long time. And it's like we didn't get nailed for it. Why? Because God was being patient. He was putting up with our wickedness. 
waiting for us to repent. And thank God he is patient and he doesn't instantaneously bring full retribution for our sins when we commit them. Because if he did, we would all be cast into hell um, about after our second breath. Um, the Bible says the wicked go astray from the womb, speaking lies. And so because we're born depraved, we almost immediately start committing sins, and that would be that. So thank the Lord for his patience with the wicked. And there's a passage in Romans chapter 2, which says that the goodness of God leads us to repentance. And so God's goodness in the face of our wickedness gives us time and opportunity and incentive for repentance. And that's what it's all about. And that's why God appears to be asleep. He's not asleep. He's just waiting patiently. And then when the time comes that there is no more time for that person, then God brings his judgment to bear. So, verse 20, As a dream when one awakes, so, O Lord, when you awake, you will despise their image. Now, notice his own self-condemnation for doubting God. Verse 21, Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was like a beast before thee. He is saying, I was foolish, I was ignorant, I was acting like a stupid cow to question whether God was going to right all the wrongs that I had been observing for so many years. And you know, that's the point we always come to when we start <clears throat> questioning God or getting mad at God or accusing God. When we finally get a biblical perspective on our circumstances, we go, you know, I was such an idiot forever questioning God, forever doubting God, forever thinking that God wasn't paying attention or that he didn't care or that his promises weren't true. How stupid could I be? And that's what the psalmist is saying about himself. He was sitting here watching the prosperity of the wicked. He's watching the struggles of his own life. He starts to question God. And now he sees he was an idiot for questioning God and doubting God. He says, verse 22, So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. He says, Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Isn't that nice to know that God holds you by your right hand? And uh, that's what we do with our children, right? We hold them with our right hand. Um, all apologies to those of you who are left-handed, but <laughs> Adam's left-handed. But uh, is there anybody else here who's left-handed? Okay. <clears throat> He's the only, only uh, gifted one. Yeah. Oh, your wife's left-handed. Oh, so that's why you guys got married. That's all there was, right? Just two left-handed people. Yeah, okay. Um, <clears throat> anyway... Um, your right hand is your strong hand. It's the one that you're most coordinated with. It's the one you can hang on with the best, right? And that's the idea of God hanging on to us by his right hand. <clears throat> he says, verse 24, Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth I desire besides thee. <clears throat> my flesh and my heart fails, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And so you see what he does. He gets his eyes off time and he puts his eyes on eternity. 
He gets his eyes off earth and he puts his eyes on heaven. He gets his eyes off people and he puts his eyes on God. And when you put your eyes on God and heaven and eternity, you realize all the injustices that happen now are not a problem. They're going to get taken care of when God finally reaches the end of his patience and brings to pass the day of judgment. And then all those righteous people who suffered on earth are going to be in heaven with God, fully compensated for all their sufferings. And all the wicked people who had all these fantastic blessings in this life are going to be cast into hell, fully punished for all their wickedness. And we see that in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, don't we? Verse 27. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. And the idea is that Israel was God's bride, his wife, and when they deserted God and went after the false gods like Baal and Ashtaroth and all the pagan Canaanite gods, they were committing adultery, whoredom against God. Okay, and that's why he uses this terminology. Just like in the New Testament, the church is the bride of Christ, and if we as Christians go after another God, we're committing adultery against Christ, our husband. Same idea. <clears throat> Verse 28. He, he's going to, all those who are far from him, verse 27, are going to perish and be destroyed. Verse 28. But it is good for me to draw near to God. Now notice the conclusion of the matter. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. And so he went from doubting to trust. How did he get there? By getting his eyes off the present and onto the end, off of time, onto eternity, off of earth, onto heaven, off of people, and onto God. That's how you settle these matters in your own soul and spirit, Eric. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because that's what the Lord's Day is all about, is to accomplish those very things, isn't it? I mean, when you come here, you get your eyes off the world and you get them onto God. You get your eyes off time and onto eternity. You get your eyes off of the present and, and onto the future. So, yeah, all those things occur, and that's why God has us have a Lord's Day, so we can set our affections on things above and not on things of the earth. So um, those who don't set aside a day for the Lord to worship him wind up um, failing to um, get reoriented to that spiritual, heavenly, eternal uh, perspective. Thank you. That's a really good observation. I've never known anybody to prosper in their Christian life who didn't go to church consistently. Um, Because the world's too overwhelming. We've got to get away from it. And we got to get into um, God's world and uh, get our, our focus reestablished. And that's exactly what he said, Eric, verse 17. When I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood. And it's a lot of times it's coming to church, it's hearing the word preached, it's being with the people of God that you realize, oh, okay, that's how I need to be thinking about this. And if you didn't get that, you'd still be going round and round and round in your... In your uh, Stinking thinking that you uh, uh, that he was in in this situation. 
So I find a lot of times going to church really bounces me out of my bad attitudes and gets me squared away again. Good. Okay, any other observations? Roy? It would seem to me as though our thinking is always in comparison. Uh, basically, he's comparing he's poor, the rich man gets everything in, in one sense, or he's unhealthy and other people are healthy and you know, they're all wretches. The, the person that's healthy, the person that's wealthy, does a, that is a wretch, does a comparison also. It's a comparison of pride. I'm so much better than them. I'm smarter than them. Um, so everybody's on this comparison role and basically it's inaccurate because you need to go to scripture to get your comparison. Yeah, very good. And who should we be comparing ourselves with? Yeah. With Jesus Christ, number one. Very good. And what else should we be comparing ourselves with? Okay. Okay, that's a really good answer, but it's not the one I'm looking for. We should be comparing ourselves, number one, with Christ, and number two, we should be comparing ourselves with what we deserve. What do we deserve? A place in hell. That's what we deserve. And if we have anything better than a place in hell, we're blessed, even if we do have cancer or whatever, okay? You know, all of our possessions are taken away. If we have Jesus Christ, we're rich, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. And if you have salvation, you're rich. And so when you compare yourselves with Jesus Christ, you know, you realize I have a long ways to grow and go. I shouldn't be, you know, patting myself on the back about how wonderful I am. And when I compare myself with what I deserve, namely hell, I'm filled with humility and gratitude and thankfulness and praise and worship because of what I've delivered, been delivered from. So you have humility on the one hand when you compare yourself with Christ and you have gratitude on the other hand when you compare yourself with what you deserve. And you notice neither of those comparisons have anything to do with the people around you. And that's where the problem is, Roy, is you articulated so well is that everybody's comparing themselves among themselves. And, you know, we're comparing ourselves to the wrong standard. If we compare ourselves with the wicked and they're better off materially than we are, we're going to be unhappy. And if we compare ourselves with people who are worse off than we are, then we're going to feel proud and arrogant. So people are not what we compare ourselves with. We compare ourselves, number one, with what we deserve, and number two, with Jesus Christ. And that keeps us humble and thankful. Um, <clears throat> there's um, some other comparisons that are brought out in the scriptures. I'll just read them to you uh, since our time is getting close. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 16 through 18, Paul's talking about the persecutions that we endure as Christians. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. He says, for which cause we faint not. Now, there's a lot in life that makes us want to faint, quit, give up, go into a pity party. 
For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perishes, and the older I get, the more my outward man perishes, yet the inward man, the spirit, is renewed day by day. Now notice the comparison here. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works a far more an exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are, are, are eternal. And so he says, yeah, my outward man is perishing, but my inward man is prospering. And the afflictions that I have now are light and temporary. And the blessings I'm going to have in heaven are eternal and weighty. Once again, not comparing with people, but comparing what we have now with what we're going to have. Um, we have a good. Uh, the worst afflictions in this life, the worst afflictions in this life are light compared to the weight of the blessing we're going to have to compensate us for those things in eternity. And then the second passage is in uh, Romans chapter 8, <clears throat> verse 18, Romans eight eighteen. This is one of Shiloh's favorite verses. I always think of her when I think of this verse. <clears throat> Romans eight eighteen. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Kind of saying the same thing. Once again, these sufferings are going to seem like a piece of dust um, compared to the blessings we're going to have in heaven. So um, we got to stop comparing ourselves among ourselves and start thinking about time versus eternity, afflictions versus blessings, what we deserve compared to what we have, what we are compared to who Christ is. And uh, those kind of comparisons produce stability, peace, confidence, perspective in the present to help us sail through the most awful of circumstances with the greatest of contentment and peace because we have it all in a proper frame of reference so that uh, we can not get all... Um, depressed or discouraged or angry over the things that happen to us now. So, the certainty of the day of judgment is that there has to be one to settle all the injustices that are now. Now, next time, we'll start to talk about um, the one who sits in judgment who's going to do the judging and the persons who are being judged in the process of that judgment. All right, let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for the fact that there is going to come a day when you are going to right all wrongs, that you will reward all righteous deeds and persons, and you will punish all wicked deeds and persons so that perfect moral justice will exist in the universe once again. 
Father, thank you for your patience in delaying the accomplishment of that perfect justice. Thank you that you delayed it for 6,000 years so that we could be saved. And Father, thank you for delaying it a little longer so that the others that have yet to be saved will have opportunity as well. Father, we recognize that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Thank you, Father. There's time and opportunity for repentance. We know not how much time, but thank you that there's time now. May those who are yet to be saved be saved now before time is no more. In Jesus' name we ask it, amen.